In the rapidly evolving world of biologic agents for renal cell cancer, it's important to remember one of the original entrants to this field, high-dose interleukin-2. I asked Dr. Bruce Redman to present a couple of patients from his practice that typify the small but real chance of major benefit from this very toxic therapy, and he began by presenting a long-term survivor of this treatment strategy. This was a 50-year-old female who had a previous right nephrectomy for what turned out to be a clear cell carcinoma of the kidney, which, as you're aware, is the most common histological subtype, who six months later rapidly progressed with symptomatic pulmonary disease, presenting with an anemia and shortness of breath. We evaluated her at that time, and even though she had some poor prognostic features, such as an anemia, and also her LDH was elevated using the Moser criteria, we felt because of her age that we would give her a trial of high-dose IL-2. And she went through high-dose IL-2. I'd be curious to know how you discussed this with the patient and laid out this option as opposed to other options. And also, what was her state of mind and what was she doing, her lifestyle? Okay, well, the options at that point in time were the only FDA-approved therapy at that point in time was Tidocile 2. There were other investigational therapies ongoing at that time. We did have also an adoptive immunotherapy program at that time, but that required us to have access to her primary tumor, which we did not have. So I explained to her at this point in time, since she had only pulmonary disease, though she was symptomatic and with an anemia and LDH, that high-dose 2 was the only approved therapy. The benefit is about 1 out of 10 with clear cell carcinoma can go into a durable, long-term, complete response. Unfortunately, 9 out of 10 do not have that benefit. I'm sure you must have talked with her about what the risk was in terms sure, of the treatment. absolutely. What did you go through with her? Well, we go through with the fact that the IL-2 toxicity in those centers experienced with administration is a rather intense therapy. It requires hospitalization. It requires two five-day hospitalizations for a cycle. And during those hospitalizations, the reason the patient is in the hospital because of the side effects and the requirements of medication to control those side effects. The IL-2 is administered every eight hours. And during that period of time, patients can have a range of symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fluid retention, decreased renal output, hypotension that would require vasopressor support, and possibility about one out of 10 at our institutions, we try not to admit the patients to the intensive care unit because we have a special unit where we treat these patients. We treat them on the bone marrow transplant unit, but the patients become very ill, sick. We do everything we can to control those symptoms. We explain to them that not everybody gets the full planned 14 doses. It's rather unusual in kidney cancer to get the full 14 doses. The discussion today is a little bit different in that we have to, and we do include the other alternative FDA-approved therapies, including the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We make a point of saying, though, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors got approved because of the fact that they can prolong time to disease progression for the most part. They are not a known therapy that can result in long-term disease-free remissions. But you still would give the 1 in 10 figure today? Yeah, essentially it is because we're well chosen. And initially it was about a 6 to 7% complete remission rate long term. But that data is from the era when we did not subclassify patients. When we took them on, we put capillary on, we put other patients on. We, In retrospect, when it was an investigational agent, we were probably treating patients who, in retrospect, probably shouldn't have treated. So in well chosen patients, and this is a patient selection, so it's not one out of 10 of the kidney cancer population. 
It's one out of 10 of a highly selected patient population. Right. Young age, usually under the age of 60 or physically fit, no serious comorbid conditions. Soft tissue only disease, usually we don't tend to treat patients if they have extensive bone disease. How about liver and lung? We do. Lung definitely is a major response rate. We do treat patients with liver involvement. And what about treatment-related mortality? What kind of number would you give there? The treatment-related mortality currently today and also at her time, it is real. It is less than 1% that we see it. When we do see it, it is usually due to things that we cannot prevent. There is evidence of occasional patient, few patients will get a diffuse cardiomyopathy from the IL-2. We think it's autoimmune-mediated, but it's less than 1%. And how many centers would you say, let's say in the United States, are, you know, qualified to do this type of treatment? I would probably tell you that I would gauge that there is probably at least one in every lower of the 48, one center at least. In Michigan, we have two actually centers that do administer this. And the patient says to you, okay, in general, how long will it be before I feel like I feel right now before I start treatment? It's a good question. We tell them they'll return to their baseline, if you will, anywhere from 7 to 10 days after the IL-2 is complete. What I explain to them is is that each day is a little bit better. We don't send anybody home with unresolved diarrhea, unresolved nausea, so then when they do go home, the major symptom they have is a decreased appetite and fatigue and a skin rash. And slowly, each day, appetite improves fatigue. So I usually tell patients 7 to 10 days. But you have two treatments, correct? Yes. We refer to it as the first half and the second half. So there is two five-day admissions. That is the treatment. And how long are they separated? By about 10 days. Just when they're feeling back to normal, we bring them back in and give them the second half of treatment. So again, from the day of the first treatment to when they've kind of recovered from the second one, how long is that? It's about a month. Interesting. And so can you follow up with what happened with this woman? Yeah, she initially went through her first cycle, the two five-day treatments is one cycle. And on follow-up, what we do is we do a follow-up evaluation for tumor response at one month and two months after treatment. And at one month after treatment, she had a major response near CR, followed her up in another month, and she had some further regression, but she had what I would determine to be continued disease, some few five-millimeter lung nodules. We then treated her through a second cycle, again, two five days, and the first month scan after that second treatment, she was in CR, and we continued to follow her at that point in time. And so now how long has it been? Oh, she's out six, seven, eight years now, actually. Huh. And what I also explain to patients once they do achieve a complete remission is that if the remission remains at two years, we have yet to see a relapse after two years in somebody who's maintained a complete response. What's this woman do? Does she work or family or what? She was a school teacher who is subsequently at this point in time retired and volunteering. What exactly did she experience in terms of toxicity? Major toxicities that she had experienced, again, were due to fluid retention with hypoxia requiring oxygen supplementation was the predominant symptom she had. She was, again, had dyspnea on onset. Usually, we don't necessarily like to treat patients with high-dose IL-2 if they have pulmonary difficulties, but usually those are restricted to somebody who's been a heavy cigarette smoker and has intrinsic lung damage. Her symptomatology, pulmonary symptomatology, was purely due to her lung involvement. And we thought at 50 years old, at her age, we'd give her the best shot we could. So 
But did the fluid retention, that was contributing to her dyspnea, I guess. Yes. And what do you see in imaging in that situation? Does it look like heart failure or what? Well, when we have imaged, we don't now, but when we had imaged, usually on day five, you would tend to see anything from looking, you know, the old, nobody uses this terminology anymore, and I'm dating myself, but the curly B lines, you would yeah, see. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> you would see that. Occasionally, you would see something that would look like the pie syndrome. You would get these peripheral haziness that you would see, similar to what you would see in someone with a neosinophilia syndrome. And how do you manage it? Basically, just supportive if they require oxygen, give them oxygen. Diuretics? Uh, Try not to use diuretics in this situation for the simple reason while they're receiving treatment during those five days, they are usually hypotensive. Hmm. So it's a total body water fluid retention, but it's extravascular. And they actually tend to have an intravascular volume depletion because of the capillary leak that goes on. So can you go through the second case? Yeah, it was a male who had a nephrectomy for kidney cancer in 1988. Twelve years later, had a nephrectomy bed recurrence, which was resected. And how was that diagnosed? It was just in follow-up. He had some back pain at that point in time. This is before he was ultimately referred to me. Huh. Had that resected. And then on follow-up, because of that renal bed recurrence, noted a mass on his left kidney and underwent two years after that a left partial nephrectomy. So basically functioning with two-thirds of a remaining kidney. And then he went for another four years before he developed some facial discomfort and a palsy in his right eye, lateral gaze palsy in his right eye. And evaluation at that time was found to have a skull base lesion. Our skull base surgeons went in and tried to resect this lesion. And he actually did well post-resection, but then developed his pain and lateral rectus, again, palsy, and on re-imaging had recurrence in his skull base. On evaluation, it was his only site of disease at that point in time. But our skull-based neurosurgeons at that time said, you know, we went after it once, we can't eradicate this. And therefore, I treated him with high-dose IL-2 for that only site of disease. It was not in the skull, but it was skull-based. It was extracranial at that point in time. I treated him, and he had what is a known complication of high-dose IL-2. He developed thyroiditis and had atrial fibrillation while on dopamine with a rapid ventricular response. Heart rates 140, 150, was transferred to the intensive care unit. We blocked him down, and ultimately he recovered from that. And on follow-up, he had a major response and ultimately developed hypothyroidism requiring replacement. So a thyroiditis usually burns out the hypothyroidism ultimately. What's the mechanism of the thyroiditis, like immune? It's autoimmune. Hmm. It is autoimmune. How um, often do you see it? Thyroiditis probably occurs in a range of about 5% of patients who undergo high-dose IL-2. And how does it usually present? Is it usually quick like this? Yeah, it usually presents. One of the things we do when we see somebody who obviously supraventricular tachydysrhythmias are known to occur with high-dose IL-2, and they can be just from the IL-2 itself and the hemodynamic changes, but when we do see it, we will pull thyroid panels on them and thyroglobulin, antithyroglobulin to see. Why do you see, I mean, I think more about hyperthyroidism with SVT, or am I not thinking right? No, no, it is thyroiditis, but it's a hyperthyroid phase of the thyroiditis. Oh, I see. So you see the SVT during when, yes, yes, when, yes, like yes. when the glands get chewed up, and they're, is that what's happening? And, it's it, spinning yeah, out? and the T3 and T4 are being excreted. The Interesting. T3 and T4 are wow. High. And then how long does it take before they're hyper? Usually about seven to ten days. Huh. Wow. After we make the diagnosis. And so have you seen patients who have, is it usually easy to deal with or sometimes there's a major problem? Well, we don't like to see atrial fibrillation with RVR in this situation. But again, we're an experienced center. My colleagues that I consult, if we do have to transfer somebody to an intensive care unit, are well aware what's going on. 
So what's going on with this man right now? He actually had a major response, lost his ocular palsy, lost his pain. But on imaging, because the base of the skull is a very difficult area to image, we elected to, since there was still something that my neuroradiologists were reading there, we decided to retreat him again while he was hypothyroid on thyroid replacement. So he's euthyroid, but because of synthroid replacement. Retreated him. He didn't have atrial fibrillation. Went through another cycle three months later. And again, has now been in continuous CR. He's only about three years out. But again, he passed that two-year landmark. So do any of these patients only get one treatment? Yes. Like what fraction? Probably, I gave you these two examples, probably those patients, well, the responding patients that do it after one cycle, it's probably about three quarters of them. So if they're in CR after one cycle, you're done? We'll just keep watching them. Hmm. And how else did he do with the treatment other than the problem with the thyroid? He actually came through it quite well other than, you know, he required dopamine for some hypotension and decrease urine output, but essentially didn't have much of the nausea, vomiting, didn't have any as far as I remember. His major complication was the atrial fib with the RVR. What do we know about trying to select out patients who have great responses to IL-2? The criteria that we use to predict somebody is clear cell carcinoma. We know for a fact that IL-2 does not work in collecting duct, does not work in papillary. We now know that. Look for patients with good performance status, okay? who are otherwise very healthy, have no other comorbid diseases. You can't treat somebody who has coronary artery disease with IL-2 and who has soft tissue component. Those are the best patients. There's some data showing that if a tumor is a high expressor of carbonic anhydrase 9, which is an immunohistochemical stain, which is not standard, but have high expression greater than 85% of their cells stain with carbonic anhydrase 9, you're much more likely to benefit from high dose IL-2 with response rates as high as 20% with that staining. But there's patients who have less than 85% who still respond to high dose IL-2. So it's not an all or none phenomenon. And carbonic anhydrase 9 staining is not standard testing, even in our institution, for patients to determine that. There's no immunological parameters. We've looked. We're still looking at our own institution to see if there's something inherent, some different mechanism in the immune system, the immune cell population that may predict for a response, but we've looked and there's none to this date. Is there anything new in terms of how the therapy actually works, the mechanism of action? I mean, how do you explain it nowadays when you give lectures to med students? Well, IL-2 is a pure immunological response modifier. What I mean by that is interferon, which falls under the category of a biological response modifier, immune modifier, it does do that, but it also has effect on other cells. IL-2s, the only cells with IL-2 receptors are lymphocytes, T-cells predominantly, and monocyte macrophages also have some IL-2 receptors. And that's the only way IL-2 will work, by binding to the receptor. So we know it's purely immune-mediated. Why some patients respond and others don't, that we don't know. And specifically, what is the actual effect in the immune system? It's an activation of T-cell and K-cell population, and also it can activate macrophages that carry it. IL-2 binds to the IL-2 receptor and sets off a cascade of activation, increasing the cytolytic capability of T-cells, increasing the killer capacity of natural killer cells. Anything else going on in terms of research, in terms of immunotherapy, renal cell cancer, trials you're doing right now? Sure. Well, we still have a great interest in immunotherapy because it remains the only therapy in kidney cancer that can result in long-term remissions. 
So what we are currently looking at in our own institution, building on things that we've done before, is a form of adoptive immunotherapy. Another form of adoptive immunotherapy, to put this in perspective, done by Dr. Childs at the NIH is allogeneic bone marrow transplant to try to transplant an immune system into the patient. What we've looked at, and others, but what we've looked at specifically, our program looks at using the patient's autologous tumor along with an adjuvant. We radiate the tumor, and then we vaccinate into their thighs, and about 10 days later, just below the inguinal crease, 10 days later, we harvest a vaccine prime lymph node cell. This cell, we've shown that after vaccination, that these lymph nodes contain T cells, which are able in the laboratory to recognize the autologous tumor and kill it. We've taken those cells. Previously, we took them and just stimulated them with a pan T cell stimulator, anti-CD3, with IL-2 to expand their number. And then we adoptively transferred those back, like a blood transfusion, to patients with high-dose IL-2. And the preliminary data that we saw with that result was that we were seeing about a 15% durable response rate, probably not much different than IL-2. Colleagues of mine working in the laboratory have shown, in at least in the murine model, that you can get better activation if you use CD3 and CD28, two other signals for T cells. So our current protocol looks at vaccinating against the autologous tumor, harvesting the vaccine prime lymph node cell as an outpatient, taking that lymph node cell into the laboratory, stimulating it and proliferating it with anti-CD3, anti-CD28, and IL-2, and adoptively transfer it back into the patient with kidney cancer. However, what we're also doing at this point in time is the week before they're to receive their activated T cells, we do a partial lymphodepletion by giving them fludarabin, a chemotherapy that lymphocytes are very sensitive to. The thoughts are, and we've shown this in murine models as of others, that there is a T regulatory population, T cell regulatory population, that we are trying to at least remove for a period of time while we adoptively transfer these activated cells back into the patient, again with IL-2. And that's our current program that's going on in that regard. What are some of the other clinical research efforts in renal cell cancer that you think maybe are going to be fruitful over the next few years in terms of really getting translated to patient care, both in terms of better utilization of the existing agents, combinations of agents, new agents? What are the things that you're excited about? Well, I think to use the CML model where we have a single target or a single genetic problem that's resulting in the disease, I think solid tumors, kidney cancer among them, is not one where there's one primary genetic defect. We're not going to find a solitary magic bullet as far as in the chemotherapy or targeted therapy realm. So I think areas of fruitful research is to find out, can we predict those patients who are going to benefit from the TKIs therapy? So we know because a majority of patients don't have a benefit from the TKIs and try to look and see if we can predict that. There is a lot of interest and a lot of work going on looking at other molecules, other targeted agents singly and in addition to some of the standard targeted agents. This is an area of fruitful research. What we're beginning to find out, though, is it's not easy to combine these agents with each other, that we are even seeing toxicities when we combine them that we don't see with the single agents themselves. But I think it's an area of clinical research that we need to pursue to see if we can increase the efficacy without increasing the toxicity or side effects of these agents. Any comments in terms of bevacizumab about the research that's been done on that, where, if at all, let's say putting aside reimbursement issues, you think it fits into the algorithm where interferon fits in? Well, interferon by itself, hopefully, by itself as a single agent is dead. 
Just as an aside, I stopped using interferon back in the 90s. I think it's more toxic without any benefit. But it's been out there for a while. And I think the recent trials of hopefully, as a single agent, nobody is using interferon. Bevacizumab, I think, has a role to play in the treatment of patients with advanced kidney cancer. I think, you know, though it hasn't been compared head-on with the agents, especially with sunitinib, I think it does have a role in there. The data with combining it with interferon, bevacizumab interferon versus the interferon, it showed that bevacizumab interferon was superior. I think the ideal trial should have been bevacizumab interferon versus bevacizumab. And that trial was not done. And so I think we're left with the question of, does adding interferon to bevacizumab augment what we should see with bevacizumab by itself? I think that's an important question because interferon, for the most part, it's not like IL-2 where you give it and stop it. It's continually being given. It, It does have a host of side effects that all oncologists are aware of. And I think to add that toxicity to bevacizumab, I think we need to know is it better than just a bevacizumab alone? So you said you haven't used interferon. What about bevacizumab? Have you used it oh, all? Yes. And how do you use it outside of protocol right now? Outside of a protocol setting, it's usually in patients who have had one of the frontline TKIs and use sometimes, again, non-protocol, and we tend to have a lot of protocols going on, but in a non-protocol setting or what I refer if somebody gives me a phone call, says, listen, I've had the patient on sutent and serafinib. They tend to have a response, but then they lost the response. I say it's valid to try bevacizumab at that point in time or even go to Temsirolimus at that point in time. Yeah, I want to ask you about Temsirolimus also, but have you seen you know useful clinical responses to single-agent Bev? Yes. Hmm. You'll have to take that as anecdotal. Yeah, well, I mean, that's yeah. the way it is right now. What about Temsirolimus? What's your experience with that? No, what I would call clinical responses, meaning tumor shrinkage. It is hard in a non-randomized fashion to tell if you've got stable disease or if it's because of the kidney cancer that you have stable disease. But we do use it off protocol. It's an FDA proof therapy.